Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. This last episode of 2020 will be, like 2020 itself, different. We'll get around to replaying some audio nuggets from the past year, since the onset of the pandemic, from a few of the 40 leaders in their respective fields who risked all and joined the podcast. From the worlds of consulting to museum directors, artists, curators, attorneys, designers, authors, publishers, educators, archaeologists, architects, investment professionals, conservators, a former ambassador, very fancy, actors, and an advertising executive, no one has yet turned down an invitation, which indicates how much we're all craving even electronic human contact. Before serving up some sound bites, I'll offer some reflections. Artscoping started as a means of staying in touch with the world during the lockdown, both scoping out what's afoot in the field and assessing how the arts are coping with enforced isolation. Now that's the first example of wordplay in this episode. Stay tuned for another. Broadly speaking, the world of arts and culture, particularly in the U.S., is in a world of hurt. The New York Times noted on December 26, 2020, quote, The broader arts and culture sector that includes Hollywood and publishing constitutes an $878 billion industry that is a bigger part of the American economy than sports, transportation, construction, or agriculture. The sector supports 5.1 million wage and salary jobs, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. Now, if my math is correct... That's an even larger number of workers than coal mining, which had 53,000 workers in 2019. Bear in mind that rescuing the fossil fuel industry has been top of mind for Congress. Bob McNally, the president of the consultancy Rapidan Energy Group, estimates that federal subsidies and tax breaks in that sector run to $15 billion a year. The nonprofit Environmental and Energy Study Institute puts them at $20 billion annually and estimates that factor in healthcare costs linked to pollution from fossil fuels put the subsidies even higher. But it's not permissible for most members of Congress to share that unemployment in the arts has cut far deeper than in other sectors like restaurants. In much of the rest of the world, the arts are considered integral to a nation's identity and economy. On March 23rd of this year, as the pandemic was settling in for the long haul, Germany announced a 50 billion euro or 61 billion US dollar rescue package for the cultural, creative, and media sectors. Germany has a population of 83 million people. That's 25% of the US population of 328 million people. And yes, I'm counting the beneficiaries of chain migration like Melania Trump. But in its waning days, the Trump administration hasn't yet announced a 2020 population-adjusted rescue package of $241 billion. Now, I know, you're saying, but there's time. This podcast is being released on December 27th, the Donald is taking a well-deserved rest in Mar-a-Lago, and Ivanka will surely get this ask across the finish line. I am withholding judgment on that possibility. The French Ministry of Culture was formed in 1959, and Europe hasn't looked back. Professor Stefan Töpler of George Mason University has noted that the post-war period in Europe led to a consensus that, quote, one could speak of culture as the fourth pillar of the modern welfare state, 
in addition to the three traditional ones, health, social welfare, and education. Meanwhile, as Stephen Colbert might put it, public support of the arts in the U.S. remains a toxic topic for lawmakers. President Trump said last week that one of his reasons for throwing out the COVID relief bill was that it allocated $40 million to the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. I think we're all tired of winning, aren't we? All that said, art scoping has been rummaging around the cultural world, speaking with leaders in search of the real state of affairs today, and there is some room for optimism. In addition to Trump's eviction from government housing next month, there are imaginative protagonists in the cultural world who have much to share, and that's what we're up to here. A podcast suited me better than a TikTok account, and it was fun to outfit the Lilliputian home studio I retreat to with gear and soundproofing. Living as I do in Manhattan, or Maha'a, as the kids say, the studio is actually a converted closet next to a window. But the financial district is so empty these days, you won't hear many car horns or wailing bankers in the background. My talented son Chase conjured up the graphic for the podcast, and his talented friend Andrew Links composed the music. My creative daughter Devon offered encouragement on striking out to interview people far and wide, and we were off. Artscoping quickly became a welcome window into the perspectives of people I admire and a platform for me to share some observations about topics ranging from the obligatory limits of deaccessioning artworks to the moral obligation of museums to dispense with toxic investments, including fossil fuels, and turn to values-aligned endowments. Ten former and current museum directors shared their experiences and explained the tough choices they faced and I've tried to hold all guests accountable for truth-telling, as opposed to offering unvarnished infomercials. In the new year, I'll check in with other protagonists in the cultural sector, from their kitchens, their studies, closets, and with any luck, offices, to offer up their insights, as we say so long to the two-time loser of the popular vote, and welcome both a new administration and a growing number of vaccines. We'll see if museums that grew intoxicated with crowds and blockbusters over the last generation can shapeshift into institutions with a legitimate claim to public support in the absence of huddled masses. We'll stay in touch with figures in the entertainment industry for whom the box office has languished as streaming at home has become the norm. We'll talk to lawyers who were sorting out tugs of war over cultural heritage, intellectual property rights, and philanthropic falls from grace. And we'll continue to stretch the limits of what's meant by art, including an occasional outlier with something interesting to share. Speaking of which, if you've grown accustomed to a weekly dose of art scoping and don't want to wait until January, I can offer up a holiday distraction. Some of you know that I record audiobooks as a hobby, but I do it pseudonymously, taking a leaf from my playwright grandfather, the original Maxwell Anderson, and still the best. His first play, Morning, Winter, and Night, was published under the pen name John Nairn Michelson. I opted for a pseudonym that is a recipe for befuddlement because it can be mistaken for my actual name, and I record under the sobriquet Mac Sanderson. Now try saying the first and last names fast. I'll wait. Mac has been known to record all manner of books, commercials, and promos, and he appears to be utterly without boundaries prepared to do voice work for anyone, including, most recently, a supermarket chain in Maine. His website, MacSanderson.com, serves up an eclectic mix of audio. He's an employee of Audible.com, and he has finally managed to convince the accounting department in Newark 
that checks made out to his stage name are on a mission to nowhere. Unlike Mac, I'm striving to retain a modicum of credibility as someone concerned about cultural heritage, ethical conduct, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I write about these topics occasionally for the art newspaper, Apollo magazine, and Artnet. Long-form publications and other recordings are cited on a different website, maxwellanderson.com, where you can also reach me. And in the before times, I would sometimes speak in person, unmasked, outside of my home. I know, it sounds crazy. As president of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation and Community Partnership, I work daily with my colleagues, Raina Lampkins-Fielder in Paris, see episode four, and Scott Browning in North Carolina, to move hundreds of artworks from our holdings into the permanent collections of dozens of museums across the United States and Europe, and to change art history to include these 160 African Americans from the South whose art was left behind because of racism, poverty, education level, and geography. We're working to improve the lives of communities that gave rise to these artists, making grants, supporting projects, and advocating on their behalf in Congress and in the public realm in general. The William and Flora Hewlett Foundation recently awarded us with $925,000 in acknowledgement of our efforts to combat racism. For that, and for the support of our board and of hundreds of donors who have made contributions at soulsgrowndeep.org, that's the third and most important website you can visit, I'm deeply grateful. Now, let's turn to some selections of audio from 2020. We've heard from people based in California, Texas, Illinois, Indiana, Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, D.C., Maryland, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine, as well as France and Australia. And it's hard to choose what snippets to feature since all my guests were very obliging, informative, and entertaining. Let's start with the powerful voice of Kinshasa Holman-Conwell, Deputy Director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. There's a lot of language out there about virtue and about weaponizing that I just don't have time for, Max. So great, you come up with a new phrase, but what are you doing, as Mr. Lewis, as Reverend Vivian and others did, what are you doing to make other people free? What are you doing to make life more bearable for people who are living on subsistence wages or have no wages? That's why I admire somebody like the Reverend Barber so much, because to start a poor people's campaign in the midst of the most affluent country in the world and to insist that the voices of poor people be raised is so inspiring. The redoubtable Arnold Lehman, former director of the Brooklyn Museum and the Baltimore Museum of Art, left nothing on the field when pushing diversity across the board in art museums. It's going to require a lot of loud railing from young museum directors and some old ones to get this thing moving forward. Lola C. West, my Souls Grown Deep trustee and managing director of West Fuller Advisors, LLC, shares some bracing statistics about racial disparity in the stock market. In very many instances, there is a total disconnect because the stock market actually feeds the racial inequality. Fed data shows that 61% of white families own stock while only 31% of blacks have. 
and only 28% of Hispanics are in the market. So right there, you see the disparity. As Monty Python would say, and now for something completely different, banking star Evan Beard was as candid as they come on Wall Street about the size of collateralized art in major art collections. There's about 20 billion worth of art loans in the U.S. alone against about 40 billion worth of art as collateral. And we have a big chunk of that. And the calculus is not Mr. or Mrs. Collector needs money. The calculus is that this generation's group of collector tends to come from markets-driven industries that knows how to use debt, leverage buyout, private equity, hedge fund, real estate. These are industries that require sophisticated use of both sides of the balance sheet. And that's where the wealth generation has been. So this generation of collector tends to apply that sophisticated use of debt to their collecting. Laura Callanan, who leads Upstart CoLab, makes the case that arts institutions should consider redirecting their portfolios towards values-aligned investing and away from big pharma, fossil fuels, arms, and other sectors of the economy. More and more foundations have both made public commitments to participate in what's called mission-related investing, where they're aligning their portfolio with the stated mission and purpose of their foundation. And more and more foundations who have been at mission-related investing for a while have started to share the results of what this has meant and what this means in terms of positive financial returns, outperforming conventional investments that may remain in their portfolio, etc. I don't know if you caught that, but in the background of Laura's recording, a bird began to sing as soon as she mentioned mission-related investing. We turn to curator and net art scholar, Dr. Christiane Paul, who notes that digital artists have been of two minds about being supported by museums. The early net artists did not necessarily want to be part of the market or even of museum cultures. It was not unusual in the 90s or even early 2000s that net artists would tell you, thanks for inviting me to do some work with the Whitney or taking part in a show. I don't want to. The talented and principled actress, Sarah Winter, shared some candid observations about Hollywood. As an actor, you don't hang your citizenship at the door just because you are in the Screen Actors Guild. You know, we are allowed to have opinions like anyone. And we are allowed to care about the issues that the country is dealing with. And I think this attitude that we are somehow privileged or elite because we are actors and we're out of touch is frankly absurd. I think most of the actors I know started out sweeping the aisles at a local cinema We started out waiting tables as carpenters. I mean, people think that, you know, at an award show, you know, you're all very glamorous and you're dressed up and up there pontificating about, you know, wildfires and climate change. Well, these things matter to us, but we borrowed that dress. We are part of an industry that encompasses caterers, lighting designers, grips, transportation, and You know, we all came from somewhere. Very, very few of us came from a place of privilege. Emeritus director of the Getty Museum, John Walsh, spoke about Rembrandt's moral focus on compassion and generosity of spirit. 
Rembrandt walked all over the place around Amsterdam and made drawings of landscapes. And he observed even the most humble things on the most nameless people. I want people to think about what it is to observe. He read the Bible. He was a deep reader of biblical stories. He read the Metamorphoses by Ovid. He read Livy's history of ancient Rome and thought about what the core stories were and what they were made to teach people in the modern world, that is, the 17th century modern world, qualities of compassion and courage and um, devotion to spouse and generosity. They're there into the pictures. He puts them there. And you can see them if you look with a kind of open mind and imagination. Artist Risa Puno revealed what many artists really think about being invited into an art dealer's stable. You know, I think there's pluses and minuses to everything. For some people that work with galleries, it's like they're really excited to make this thing. They make it, people love it, but then they want to move on to something else. And I've heard several stories where their gallerists are kind of like, well, there's a waiting list for this. So we need more of this thing, you know, and it, it becomes a tricky thing as an artist to not get to follow what you want. But then on the other hand, it's like those people at least the the ones that are that have like waiting lists aren't dealing with supporting their work through a day job. You know, I think it, it all depends on what you want to make and who it's for, right? I love the idea of it being so part of people's everyday lives that they live with it. But at the same time, it's like when somebody owns it, then like nobody else gets to experience it. Arts educator Alex Bernstein, whose conductor father Leonard was the consummate social activist, offered a reminiscence about how culture has been used and abused in the United States. At one point, his passport was taken away in the, in the 1950s. And the two, two years later, he was being sent to the Soviet Union to perform. Curator Petra Slinkard noted that the fashion industry can't rely on museums to continue to fluff their next season. You know, I think that the day of putting a a runway work on a mannequin to just be admired simply for its beauty, I will never say that that will not be something that people are interested in, but I do think that people are hungry for more. Citing the views of FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, Emeritus Director Jim Duff gave just one reason why museums have to tread very carefully when considering deaccessioning works of art. But it's not difficult, and this is a worry, to imagine that a FASB member or a FASB staff member looking through the media at the current sales could decide that direct care means just moving money around. And then they might well propose, once again in a few years, a requirement for capitalization of collections. That is a fraught requirement that very few museums would want to see, and the battle against it would be more difficult the next time. Virginia Tech's Dean of Architecture Aaron Betsky blows the whistle on the imagined urbanizing of America, which maybe can mean that progressive people will settle in purple and red states and eventually tilt Congress away from QAnon. Everyone from futurists to architects keeps claiming that sprawl is going to go away, that the city will rise again, and I see absolutely no evidence of that. I see sprawl continuing. I understand that sprawl is extremely problematic, both 
in terms of its incredible waste of resources and space, but also in terms of the social isolation it creates. However, that does not mean that we can just think it away. Rather, we need to think through it and figure out how to make small work. Tess Davis, executive director of the Antiquities Coalition, reveals that object histories of ancient artworks are often invented and revealed not by experts, but by journalists. Something that I have found very interesting, and we've seen this in a number of cases that have shown up in the court docket or in newspaper headlines, is that you'll have a provenance that was accepted by leading experts in archaeology or ancient manuscripts or curators, but was disproved by a journalist in, you know, five minutes using Google. The Hirshhorn's director, Melissa Chu, tries to help art collectors understand that museum people didn't enter the field to accumulate stuff for personal benefit. I don't really have strong attachment to things or places. And so in a way, a museum is the perfect place for me because people always say to me, oh, you know, don't you want to own that work of art? You know, you have, you see a great work of art, don't you want to own it? And it's usually a collector who asks those kinds of questions. Sure. And, you know, I always respond with, well, no, for us in the museum world, it's not really owning. That's not what it's about. It's about either wanting to work with that artist to create something new or for it to enter the museum collection so that it can be shared with the public. Art dealer David Lewis spells out one key difference between contemporary art galleries and auction houses. In general, a gallery in my position doesn't think very much about the fate of auction houses because the competition between private dealers and auction houses is, generally speaking, for very blue-chip art at the top of the market. So... I think that in a bull market, in a climate with a robust kind of speculative risk appetite, the gallery world and the auction world are, seem much more similar than they actually are. Whitney Museum's top conservator, Carol Mancusi-Ungaro, recounts a tale underscoring how complicated it can be to restore contemporary artworks. I interviewed an artist named Dario Robletto. You probably remember his mm -hmm. installation. He was a very young artist. He'd never met a conservator before. It was an incredible installation. It was called Popular Hymns Will Sustain Us, End It All, 2000, 2001. It was about music, but it was an installation with all these different figurines, figures he had made. And one of them was a butterfly. And so he said, well, you know, what do you do? What does a conservator do? And I said, well, for example, if this antenna of this butterfly broke, I would make another one that would look the same and would replace this one. And he said, well, you can't do that. And I go, yes, I can. I can make it look the same. He said, no, it has to be made out of James Brown's sex machine, the record. Archaeologist Professor Alex Bauer, reflecting on the removal of Confederate statues, drew a parallel to the defacement of objects in third millennium Acadia. I teach a class in Near Eastern archaeology. There's a wonderful bronze head of Naram Sin, who is the son of Sargon. And it's a beautiful bust, but the eyes are all gouged out. And this was almost certainly done in antiquity. 
the eyes were inlaid with stones and really looked very lifelike so that they seem to have a power when you look at those piercing eyes in a sculpture. And when enemies came and dismantled the sculptures of the ruler whom they conquered, they often would chisel out the eyes and those important, powerful features that gave such a commanding presence to the sculptures. My Dartmouth classmate and the world-renowned Kimball Art Museum's deputy director and curator, George Shackelford, introduced his cocker spaniels, Thomas and Jack, who bore witness to our conversation. Max, I'll have to apologize. You may hear in the background the tinkling of the, uh, <laughs> of the tags around the neck of one of my two cocker spaniels who are sitting watching me, uh, wondering what I'm doing. Well, and our listeners are wondering what their names are. Their, their names are uh, Thomas and Jack. Thomas and Jack. Excellent. And they're Texans, I take it? They, they are Texans, okay. absolutely. Consummate ad man McKinney's Brad Brinegar puts our fractured media landscape in perspective. 73 million people saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show in 1964, and that was 41% of all available TV viewers. Well, that sounds impressive until you realize that with only three networks, the average show got 33% of all available TV viewers. <laughs> Today, the only way that you can do that in our fractured media world is on something like the Super Bowl. My voice coach, Danielle Quisenberry, has the last word, sharing a piece of advice for voice actors that I've tried to follow. Audio is indestructible. So folks that like to swear when they make a mistake, it's usually <laughs> there to be pulled out underneath the edit. I think showing our best selves in the booth is the way we want folks who get the work down the line and the production chain to perceive us. So that's a sampling from conversations over the last many months. In case you haven't figured it out, this is an encouragement for you to go back and listen to the full episodes. I want to thank you for listening and invite all of you to rate and review Artscoping on Apple Podcasts. With enough encouragement, I can entice more clever people to participate in hopes of offering you some more good listening. We'll be speaking with Sir Charles Samara-Smith, former Secretary and Chief Executive of London's Royal Academy of Arts and former director of both the National Portrait Gallery and the National Gallery London, about his forthcoming book on museums. We'll be talking with Sarah Bancroft, executive director of the James Rosenquist Foundation, about artist-endowed foundations, and with several other leading figures in the cultural world. So, here's to the end of 2020, with its many discontents, and to a fresh beginning in January. I look forward to being on your smartphones and laptops then. Thanks for listening.